I went into pediatrics because during my training in medical school, the pediatricians that I rotated uh, at the Children's Hospital in Birmingham, England, they were the nicest people. Far nicer than the internal medicine people. I said, you know, I'm much more comfortable with that crowd. Hello, and welcome to Cancer Rebranded. In 1992, I was diagnosed with brain cancer, a type of brain tumor usually seen in adolescents and young adults. My name is Craig Lustig, and more than 30 years after hearing the words, you have cancer, I'm having conversations about what has changed in the cancer experience, what is what hasn't changed in the work ahead. Dr. Finley is an internationally recognized um, authority in the management of children, adolescents, and young adults with brain tumors. Following his training, he held positions at Stanford University, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Memorial Sloan Kettering, and New York University. Um, and he is mo most recently, he's been, uh, he was director of the neuro-oncology program at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. He was a professor of pediatrics at the Ohio State University and director of the neuro-oncology program at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Can we talk a little bit about why you chose oncology and more specific pediatric oncology in terms of your professional pursuits? I was already developing an interest, a research interest in um, uh, immunology, in the immunology of cancer and of, um, other kinds of diseases. Um, and in fact, in my last year in medical school, I was fortunate enough to get a, to do a rotation at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm for four months, working in a research lab there, in a lab that was uh, a huge conglomerate, it was a whole institute, it was very much focused on cancer, on the immunology of cancer. And very important to me, there was a guy there from the United States spending two years there, who'd come out of Minnesota, Minneapolis, and the laboratory, the clinical laboratory, and work of a doctor, famous Dr. Robert Good, the father of pediatric immunology, uh, who had basically developed the technology and, uh, and the whole premise for using high dose, that's marrow ablative chemotherapy with blood cell rescue in the treatment of children with immune deficiencies by restoring their immunity. And we had discussions about how this could apply to other childhood diseases, to leukemias, and ultimately perhaps uh, even to other types of cancers. So I was already thinking about immunology. I was already thinking about cancer uh, in those days. Ultimately, my reason for going into brain cancer in children came several years later when having completed residences in England and moved to the United States and completing fellowship training in both pediatric immunology and pediatric hematology oncology, very much as a, as a lab rat, if you like, doing research into how the body's lymphocytes suppress um, leukemia cells and other, um, and, and stimulate certain red cell production, normal red cell and disordered production. And I got my first faculty position at Stanford. And then I arrived there and I was told I was the junior boy on the block. And they like to divide the different types of childhood cancer between different people. So they said to me, sorry, but you're gonna get the disease nobody else wants. And they gave me brain tumors. And that was in 1980. And frankly, that 
um, serendipitous set of circumstances uh, was what stimulated me to go into pediatric neuro-oncology because I realized very rapidly between 1980 and 82 in my time at Stanford, that first of all, most children at that time died of their cancers and the small number of their brain cancers and the small number of children that survived were indeed experiencing a pyrrhic victory. That is, their quality of life, their quality of survival was absolutely abysmal and nobody was paying any attention to it. Not the neurosurgeons that would pat them on the head once a year and say, oh yes, you're doing well, see you in another year. You know, nothing was being done for them, either in their cognitively or even surprisingly in their hormonal problems and their growth and, and physical development problems. So to be very honest, I realized, you know, there's nobody in this field. Everybody, I found that out very rapidly, said, Finley, you know, this is a great arena for you to make a career for yourself and to be able to help the maximum number of people. Nobody is in the field. They all do terribly. There's only one way and that's up. And that's how I ended up, quite honestly, um, focusing my entire career from pretty much 1980 onwards to the present time in the management, uh, trying to improve the outcome for children with brain cancer. You know, there's no question you're obviously very passionate about it, but I think that's uh, that you, you sort of grabbed the opportunity. And I think that's um, it speaks at this point in your career to me a lot about, again, the impact that you've had on my life and the life of many other individuals. And um, we've benefited from your passion and from your work and from building the, your expertise and really leading this field. So thank you. You know, what kinds of changes have you seen? Uh, um, you can talk about it from the pediatric cancer perspective. You can talk about it from the medical perspective. You can talk about it from the quality of life perspective. Which, what are the big picture changes that you've seen? The big picture changes actually cross all those uh, items that you talked about, big childhood cancer in general, childhood brain tumors in particular, and not only talking about improving survival for children with brain cancer, but, but improving their quality of life. And there's no question that improvements in surgical neurosurgical techniques over the years have contributed dramatically, both to improving cure rates through getting better resections, as well as better quality of life through um, uh, earlier complete resections and, and less damaging neurosurgery, thanks to all the techniques uh, that were available, that are uh, have become available. The changes have been so fantastic that that's what that's really has has been a tremendous help to me in continuing to encourage me over the years um, to continue striving and and keeps me enthusiastic uh, at the present time and particularly enthusiastic about the future. You know, up till about 1985, uh, I would have said we were in the dark ages in terms of the treatment of childhood brain cancer. Since 1985, we've had the MRI scan, which again, imaging technologies have helped improve diagnosis, survival, and quality of survival, along with neurosurgical techniques. But also since 1985, we really embarked upon prospective multi-center, even multinational in some cases, clinical trials for children with brain cancer that have really allowed us to make uh, steps forward. 
trials that have allowed us to, for example, with medulloblastoma, the most common uh, malignant brain tumor of childhood, allowed us to improve the curate, but by reducing doses of radiation through the addition of chemotherapy, reducing the long-term side effects of that treatment. And we've gotten to the point uh, that is very exciting that for the youngest of children under uh, five, six years of age, my head starts studies that have been going on since the early 1990s, uh, we now are curing almost half of the children with medulloblastoma under six years of age without any radiation at all, simply with good neurosurgical practice, good imaging, um, uh, and good in, uh, strong chemotherapy. So that's been very exciting. And those have been empiricist clinical trials. They weren't particularly based on any biological understanding. But what's happened in the last decade um, is that our understanding of the biology of tumors like medulloblastoma uh, in particular, and certain other tumors, uh, low-grade gliomas, have allowed us and are increasingly allowing us to not only stratify children more accurately, who needs more therapy, who needs less therapy, this of certain molecular approachly target tumors very specifically based on molecular findings. So that, for example, in children with low-grade gliomas who have certain uh, aberrations and molecular profile, we call it a BRAF, but there are others. We have drugs that target specifically that. And they're oral medicines that have few side effects on the rest of the body, so they can be taken for a very long time, uh, even years. So that has revolutionized the treatment of children for low-grade gliomas. I mean, we talk about low-grade gliomas, God forbid we call them benign, they're still cancers, and their five-year survival rate is no better than that for children with acute leukemia. So, you know, we have to bear in mind that even low-grade gliomas uh, can cost life and certainly uh, Im impact adversely on quality of life if we don't treat them properly. And increasingly, we're seeing with more and more cancers, the application of, of a biological um, our biological understanding, our growing biological understanding of childhood brain tumors impacting upon how we uh, stratify and assign treatments. So the field has expanded dramatically. Um, the uh, acceptance widely now of importance of quality of life has led to all um, major and even smaller pediatric cancer centers, let alone brain cancer centers, um, uh, employing an, an, uh, 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 neuropsychologists, psychologists, and being very upfront and early in evaluating children and evaluating them prospectively to, to um, intervene at an early stage before uh, uh, developmental problems. Thank you. It's, it, I, again, um, uh, I know this, but I think it's really important for uh, anybody who's listening to know the contributions that you've made to this field and how the, the, the advancements that we really have made, as you said, both in treatment and in terms of quality of life. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, so, so play futurist here. Tell me what, you th what do you think the future is going to look like on, on any of these levels that we've talked about? Well, um, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, very excited about the future. 
uh, very excited about the future for brain cancer uh, in children um, at least. Um, I've mentioned already that I'm increased biological understanding of these tumors, molecular understanding of these tumors has led, is leading to uh, targeted therapies that are less uh, bombastic, if you like, than our traditional chemotherapy, which affects uh, you know, the rest of the body, uh, always hoping that it won't affect the rest of the body as much as it helps the cancer, help hurts the cancer. Um, won't hurt the, sorry, hurt the rest of the body as much as it hurts the cancer. Uh, but these targeted therapies hopefully have very few, if any, um, uh, side effects to the rest of the body. That's very exciting. But apart from just biological agents, if you, as we call them, biological therapies, there are now immunological strategies being pursued, uh, successfully incorporated already for many liquid cancers uh, um, and increasingly being evaluated and tested in solid tumors and indeed in brain cancer. And so for me, having started my career very much in, interested in the immunity of cancer and in, in um, how to overcome immune deficiencies with bone marrow transplants and the like, the idea of cell therapy uh, to tackle um, many different types of cancer. It's like it's come full circle for me. And it's not only cell therapy, but it's also what we call humoral or antibody mediated uh, mm -hmm. therapy as well. So what I'm referring to here and, and the, the catchphrases that you'll read about in Reader's Digest or the New York Times, uh, or um, uh, certainly in your physician's offices uh, are uh, BITE antibodies. That stands for this convoluted term bispecific T-cell engager antibodies. That's an antibody that is designed when you inject it quite simply under the skin mm. of a patient. One end, that's why it's bispecific, one end will bind to the patient's T lymphocytes and the other end will latch onto the tumor cells. And then the T cells go crazy and initiate a cytotoxic, a cell killing effect specifically targeting the cancer cell. That approach um, uh, is being utilized and is being, being approved in certain cancers now. Uh, and we're going to see more and more of it across the board in the treatment of cancer. Now, the cellular variation of that is more complicated and potentially more toxic. In that case, they take one's own T lymphocytes uh, by collecting it in a similar way to which we collect blood cells for bone marrow transplant now. Um, they collect the lymphocytes, stim expand them uh, in the culture system, if you like, outside the body, genetically engineer, genetically modify them to be able to do what the bite antibodies do. That is, they take the T cells and genetically engineer them that, so that when they are injected back into the patient, they will latch onto the cancer cells and kill them. This is now over a decade ago, successful in retrieving children who have relapsed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, very successfully retrieving them. It's now being applied for adults with acute leukemias, lymphomas, and to my hopeful advantage, uh, in multiple <laughs> myeloma as well, because in fact, uh, uh, next week I'm heading off to New York um, to undergo the, uh, this 
cellular therapy known as CAR T-cell and another long-winded um, abbreviation, CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor targeting T-cells, uh, modified T-cells. Um, but it's great therapy. Um, there are refinements that are needed in it. Uh, it may be. Uh, one problem is the time lag between taking out your own lymphocytes, expanding them, modifying them, and being able to go uh, to receive such therapy can be upwards of four to six months. And unfortunately, many patients with many cancers can't wait that long. So already work is underway for off the shelf, that is using somebody else's uh, lymphocytes that you can use immediately or very or much more expediently, expeditiously, sorry, than going through the process of engineering your own individual lymphocytes. Uh, those are being evaluated now at many centers in North America and in Europe and in China. Uh, by the way, China's very much been uh, leading the forefront of CAR T cell therapies mm. uh, for various kinds of cancers. Those kind of strategies, obviously, for myself, <laughs> because I've had bite antibody therapy very successfully, which put me into minimal disease. And now I'm going to go through CAR T cell therapy to hopefully lay this thing to rest. Uh, at least for a number of years without uh, a need for any other further therapy. Uh, so it's very a, a personal great interest to me, but also of great interest for some of the brain cancers, uh, such as malignant gliomas, where we yet have any treatment strategies that work and where the, the targeted therapies that I talked about that target particular molecular aberrations alone are clearly not being going to be enough because when we talk about malignant gliomas um, traditionally you call glioblastoma multiforming you're talking about a tumor that's the molecular profile of that tumor changes not only between different patients but even within the same patient over time but even at the same time different parts of the tumor within the same patient's brain will have different molecular profiles so Unfortunately, malignant gliomas are the least likely of, of many, many different types of cancers that are going to benefit from targeted biological therapies, even though we're obviously we're still trying to incorporate them and, and use multiple targeted therapies. I think that the answer for malignant gliomas is going to come from cellular therapies and or uh, these humoral or antibody-mediated uh, bite antibody therapies. Thank you. One one last topic, and maybe this is more of a, a, a personal nature, but so you're a cancer survivor of 40 plus years, and I'm a cancer survivor of 30 years, and you've treated many patients over the years who are, what, 5, 10, 20, 30 years out from their treatment. Um, I think we're all a little uncertain about the future. I'll speak to myself. Uh, it, it is... Um, where I, I think that there are certainly strategies and we're thinking about how to manage our uh, um, lives from a medical standpoint. And that can be challenging because you're sort of cobbling together and trying to find the right people who have enough of an interest in your uh, cancer history that they want to help you to, you know, think about the kinds of, whether it's screenings at a different age or specific kinds of care that you mean or, or, or kinds of other diseases or whatever it might be. But um, 
do you have any, I don't know, words of wisdom for, for those of us that are sort of, uh, because it seems to me that from a research perspective, there's been a lot of survivorship research, but we're still in sort of uncharted territory. We don't know what it means to be uh, a, 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 brain, a germ cell brain cancer patient uh, you know, 20 years out from your treatment, what, what is the nature of the toxicity of your uh, treatment and what the effect might be now and those sorts of things? Your question is, is so important. Uh, so important for both of us, <laughs> as well as for all the patients over whom we're so concerned. Um, we don't have enough very long-term data yet for brain cancer in particular, uh, because until fairly recently, there weren't that many brain cancers that were cured. Uh, German cell tumors like yours are one of them. Um, some, medullo, some children with medulloblastoma is another. And we know that from the old days when we gave high doses of radiation therapy, those children grew into adults who were very profoundly impaired. We can anticipate that even with reduced doses of radiation, it is likely that there will be long-term effects. Uh, uh, clearly, you're functioning pretty well. I'm functioning pretty well. You know, but that, you know, that doesn't negate. You know, People might turn around and look at us and say, be grateful, you SOBs. You're alive and kicking all these years later. You know, In my case, I never got brain radiation. But 40-odd years ago, I got radiation both to my abdomen uh, and also uh, to my more, perhaps even more, well, not more importantly, but as importantly, to my chest and my lungs, because I developed metastases to my lungs. As a consequence of that, I certainly, uh, that is certainly a contributing factor to my substantial coronary artery disease. Again, fortunately, I've not had any uh, significant clinical effects, medical effects from it, but I've had to be treated for it with stenting up the, of all my coronary arteries. Uh, my lung function is at the lower limit of normal, uh, but it's it's still you know within that normal range. My kidney function is not that great, and has been a significant problem ongoing in my treatment in recent years for myeloma. I've had a kidney biopsy, which has documented it, and I've got late late radiation effects uh, on my kidney from ray, uh, um, which have been described and are reported. Uh, and I have to be real careful about what medications I take uh, in supportive care settings or, or complementary medications because they might adversely impact upon my um, uh, rather uh, delicate kidney function, shall we say. Um, so yes, there are clearly long-term effects uh, for wherever you get radiated. Uh, and, in, and I'm not going to say that you get away scot-free with chemotherapy either. We know the effect of certain drugs like the platinum compounds on hearing, um, and that becomes very important if you're a very young child at the earliest stages of acquisition of language to have good hearing function. Um, yes, we've got technologies for improving and overcoming that, uh, not only with hearing aids, uh, but with implanting implanted um, uh, assistance technologies now that are extremely good, but we're still in the point, as you say, of learning about some of these light effect, late effects. So we are, uh, Craig, you and I are still part of the experiments, uh, if you like, <laughs> of a learning curve uh, for all of this. Um, but again, 
um, with people continuing to pay attention to this, sensitized to this, certainly in the pediatric arena. There are long-term follow-up studies being conducted uh, nationally through our nationwide children's oncology group, following up these children into adulthood and for many years out, uh, evaluating all these kinds of concerns, be they cognitive growth, hormonal, uh, hit, uh, heart, lung, kidney, um, and of course, fertility issues uh, that are so incredibly important. So your points are well taken. Uh, again, we're both alive and kicking as a consequence of those therapies that we got all those years ago. Uh, personally, I don't get at all and never have gotten angry about uh, the way I was treated back in 1975 and 76 um, um, by the physicians and their manner towards me as a young mm -hmm. adult uh, or the treatments that I got at that stage. I'm here as a consequence of at least of the treatments but I learned so much from that personal experience, which I hope has helped guide me um, uh, in the way I have worked with families and patients uh, over my long career. It's been a process of, of my personal experience helping me in how I manage patients and families, uh, and the patients and families helping me in how I dealt with myself and dealt with my own. But I would stress, if I may, finally, one very important feature, that despite uh, the impression that perhaps has come out because my, inf my life has been so affected by cancer in so many ways, personally and professionally, it is important that you never allow your cancer to define you as a human being and as an individual, because you and I both encompass far more than beyond that. Uh, we have lives beyond our world of cancer. Um, I have a wife and three dogs. I have a stamp collection, uh, which, is, uh, which uh, assuages my incredibly obsessive compulsive behavior, uh, which occupies a significant part of my time. Uh, we like hiking, we like watching movies uh, and binge watching TV series. <laughs> Uh, we love eating, I love cooking uh, and fine wines. All of that uh, is an uh, every bit, if not, well, far more important a part of defining who you are as a person and as a personality than the fact that, oh, I've had cancer or, oh, I have cancer or, oh, I've spent many years treating people with cancer. Again, the, the, it's almost a cliche, but it's a cliche worth repeating. Uh, don't let cancer define who you are. Wow, Jonathan, this is um, to say that you've given me a great gift here and given anybody who may have the opportunity to listen to this. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for your willingness to give of your time and really share your your life experience and talk about this from the personal and the per professional uh, context. And uh, I, I just can't thank you enough. It, it is, um, I think that you are, you really embody in many respects what I think um, for me is, is so important about sort of uh, people, I hate the phrase, but people talk about sort of cancer as gift. Well, it's about what you, what cancer taught you. It's not about letting cancer um, define you, 
but it's about what you learn from cancer and how it makes you actually more interesting and more uh, a person who's really gives back more to the world. So thank you. Well, Craig, thank you. Uh, I hope you are able to disseminate this amongst uh, parents, uh, patients and families. Um, I, for me, this has been a pleasure, uh, but I genuinely mean that it's also an honor and a privilege for me uh, to be able to participate. Um, but my career has allowed me and my life and my survival, my survivorship has allowed me uh, to get to this point and be able to share all of this. Thank you for sharing. I wish you just the best of health and, um, and we'll be in touch. Absolutely. Absolutely.